So today, if you have questions for Jennifer, don't text them to me. <laughs> I won't do them justice, but please go and talk with her. Those of you who are listening online, you can reach out to me and I'll connect the dots, or as she said, just reach out to her and Messenger on Facebook and that'll work as well. And, and, and what I love about Jennifer's story is I find it so true to the gospel where it's growing around the world, including the United States, that it's in the places that are dark, the places that are damaged, the places that are poor, the places that are broken, the places where violence reigns, the places filled with corruption, that strangely sometimes God shines out all the brighter and all the stronger and that his kingdom is more manifest than forgive me, but us who in so many ways comparatively have it so easy. So we're going to move to Texton. And I want to let you know how this is going to play out today. We have one more week after this Sunday of questions you never thought you could ask in church. But today is the last day that we'll have live text in open. Because I do want to try to address as many of these questions as I possibly can. I know some of you have been patiently waiting for the last couple of weeks. So we do invite you, whatever questions you might have on God, life, theology, the Bible, Christianity, how it compares to other religions, how it intersects with how you're making sense of the world, text them in. I'll get them anonymously. I'll do the best job I can to answer them on the spot. And I want to always assure you of this. I will be as straightforward with you as I can, as honest with you as I can. And whatever you want to ask, this is a safe place and a good place to ask it. I will get it honestly and do the best job I can on the spot. So, with that being said, some of you may be texting in now. I am going to bat cleanup on a couple from last week. And here's one that someone asked related to our project called First Wave. Is the construction, if the construction that was just completed is First Wave, what is going to be second wave. Those of you who don't know, Fellowship of Faith for the past several months has been engaged in a renovation project, much of what we're experiencing out there in what we call our coffee house, putting in a mezzanine and giving things a facelift, and, and it isn't quite done yet. Throughout this summer, we have got it to what we call functional standards, but there's still a number of details, particularly around signage and decoration and other things to come that are still going to happen that you'll see develop in the next couple of months. But when we launched this project, we called it First Wave because we knew it was a temporary measure. Fellowship of Faith has been out of space for some time. And looking at the growth trajectory that we've had, and looking at the, the scope of impact that we've begun to have that's opened in, in, in far greater ways, we know that if we don't do something about it, we will put a level and cap off the amount of people that can benefit from what we're doing here and looking to connect at Fellowship of Faith. So First Wave was intentionally named to always be what I would call a stopgap for now. It was a stopgap to a larger project of expansion that the congregation decided it wanted to pursue back in 2019, blowing out this wall, blowing out the back wall, adding on several thousand more square feet to our facility. And as we see it, that still looms out there. We know that that is still to come, but what First Wave is allowing us to do is shore up even more and utilize last, 
last, every last ounce of our space and maximize it before having to undertake as a congregation something of that expense. So you're going to continue to see other improvement projects happen around here to our land as we continue to build community with community seating spaces outside and dreams of maybe like sand volleyball pits and, and other kind of fun things that are coming. Outdoor cafe kind of things, maybe outdoor amphitheaters and gazebos, things like that. You'll continue to see things happen internally as we improve our infrastructure and things like that. And we have not given up on the hopes of planting satellite or daughter churches, which continue to be there. You will see several waves yet to come. And I want to encourage you to do this. Sign up for our e-news here at Fellowship of Faith. You can go right on our website, fellowshipoffaith.org, and go to the e-news page or the contact us page, or really you can find it on any number of pages there. And just sign up for our e-news because that's where you're going to get the updates on what these next waves are and the timetable by which they play out. This is just the beginning, guys. And it's a good beginning. And I cannot wait to see where God is taking us as a people and who he is molding and forming us to be and what our church is going to look like three years from now. I can only imagine. And it's going to be great. So that's where we're off to. Here's another. Excuse me. Um, I skipped one and that wasn't intentional. There it was. You just saw it. What is the funniest Freudian slip you've ever had as a pastor? I read this one coming. It made me laugh, but I feel so lame right now because these are kind of out of sight, out of mind for me. I say stupid things all the time, right? And so it's such a part of my MO that I don't remember it from one week to the other. I would like to hear from you. Maybe you text in what your favorite Freudian slip is from me in this time, because I guarantee you there's been dozens of them. Um, I'm sorry, I can't do better for you in the moment. How about this? Is there a reason the music is getting louder, or am I just old? (laughs) Yeah, I hate to tell you, you might be just old. Um, But, you know, I I think I would rather maybe rephrase it this way. You might just be getting more sensitive. Because I find it really often doesn't have something to do with age as much as it has to do with preference or um, the peculiarities of frequencies you hear in the ear. And here's what I mean by it. I have been getting this question in for over 10 years. All right, if the music has been getting louder for over 10 years, it would be like standing in front of a jet. So it might be related more to you. I've gotten this when Ben Denon was our worship director. I've gotten this when Mark Chaffee was our music director. I've gotten this when Brian Roberts was our music director. I got this even intervening times when Stacy was, was, was pinch hitting for us. And so this is nothing new here. But I will encourage you um, to do this. Volume is not the same in every seat in the house. And so it might take some experimentation by you to find where your sweet spot is. I want to share an irony with you. Typically at a rock concert, it's the first two rows that blow you out. Here, the first two rows are actually quieter than the middle of the house because of the way the speakers are at. So you guys, like right there, you are a ground zero in the blast. And back there, and we have the coffee house for those who don't want the full sensory thing as well. I encourage you to experiment in that and find it because we do put a DB reader on it most weeks, and it's been pretty constant throughout, believe it or not. Generally, it tends to do with frequencies and things. But thank you for asking on that, and uh, we'll pray for you in your senior years. All right? Here's one. 
It's kind of a neat one, isn't it? Was I randomly put into my body? And did I randomly get the personality and interests that I have? It's really an interesting question because it begs a definition of what you mean by random. I love what Psalm 139 has to say where God talks about how he knew you before you were conceived in the womb, how he knows every hair on your head, which is not as difficult a task for some as it is for others, but that God knew you before your parents knew you. I should have let that one hang a little bit more. I'm sorry. (laughs) That in one sense, there's nothing random when it comes to God. But that can lead you to the false conclusion that everything is fatalistic and predetermined as well, which also isn't the case. God knows you intimately and God knows who you are and God knows who you would become, some, I think, by his design and some by the allowance of the free course of history and life to play itself out, the impact of your parents, the people you choose to associate with, what you choose to focus on and fixate on in life, where you allow your interests to develop and where you mute them or deny them. All of these things are going to have an impact on the interests and personality of who you are, and God gives you free range within that to explore that, which is both very encouraging, isn't it? That God doesn't predetermine who you are, that he goes, I'm a God of freedom, and I let you explore and become who you want to be, but also very frightening, isn't it? because we know that there's consequences to our actions. And we don't just do right and wrong, but shape our very selves and our very way of thinking and being. And that's why God always invites us to do it his way, to allow our interests and personality to be shaped, to become the fullest of who he knows you can be and not a second-rate version of yourself. Does it kind of make sense? Hopefully that helps. And if that sparks more questions, well, good. All right. We, we got a number on gender issues. These are three separate texts that came in, but they struck me as related. So I packed them all together. Let's read them. When it comes to gender roles, both in the family and in the church, how do Christians live out biblical dogma in a culture where, which claims progressiveness over biblical authority and the person cites 1 Timothy 3, verse 2? It's always helpful to look up a reference. So let me read 1 Timothy 3, verse 2 to you very, very quickly. Here's what it has to say. Now, the overseer, referring to like pastors must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. And then it goes on to he must manage his own family well and his children must respect them and so forth. Question one. Here's number two. What is the church's stand on women in leadership slash teaching roles? Also in 1 Timothy, you can read some things there. And three. How do we know God's a guy and not a girl? Let me take these in reverse order. God is not a guy, nor is he a girl. God is genderless, if I can put it that way. And don't throw Jesus in my face. I know Jesus is God and Jesus was clearly a male. But when we talk about God the Father, God before Jesus was conceived, 
is genderless. Both male and female are a reflection of God and made in the image of God so that what we see in maleness and femaleness are both reflections of a greater and more transcendent reality of the essence of who God is. Now, we use male pronouns all the time because the Bible uses male pronouns all the time to refer to God the Father, and and there's some both linguistic and cultural reasons for that. But don't let it lead you down the wrong path of thinking that God has an XY chromosome as opposed to a double X. Okay, moving up, what is... um, What is the church's stand on women in leadership in teaching roles? Well, there's a diversity of opinion within the church at large. And I'm taking this question very literally because it does not say what is this church's stand on women in leadership roles, women in leadership in teaching roles. You will see a divide based on two terms that I want to teach you today called egalitarianism and complementarianism. Now, those are million-dollar words, right? Anytime you get a word with more than three syllables, it's like, oh. So, say it with me. Egalitarianism. Beautiful. Good job. Say complementarianism. You did well. Impress your friends and neighbors. Egalitarianism says this. Male and female are both made in the image of God and that what our roles in society or culture or family or church should be dictated by is fundamentally the desires of those within that context based on their callings and gifts. So therefore, if a woman would be a gifted teacher, let her teach. If a woman would be a gifted leader, let her lead. If the woman wants to go to work and the man stays home, then great if that's how that family wants to play it out. And there is a cross-section of Christian thinking that has a deep history that approaches this question from the egalitarian standpoint. There is another cross-section of churches, and these are all people who deeply love God, people who are Bible-believing, and people who are trying to sincerely interpret the Word of God and live it truly in life, who say that even though a woman might be better at teaching, and even though gifts allow themselves in different ways, God has nonetheless orchestrated male and female to operate within certain roles, and some will restrict it simply to the church, while others will extend it to the family at greater, large, and some even larger to society itself. And then they'll dig into those passages to say, these are roles that a man or a woman should naturally take. And often within those, it will in some way, shall I say, limit the amount of teaching or authority a woman might have in certain kinds of contexts. Now, I will tell you where we're at at Fellowship of Faith, even though you didn't ask it that way, but I'm just suspecting that maybe you're curious and that's what you might be asking. We belong to a denomination called the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, which is historically complementarian, which sees in the Bible that Both men and women are equal in the sight of God, and both men and women have gifts that need to be shared in the kingdom of God, and that both men and women held the same value in the church and in the family and everything else, but nonetheless there is tendency towards roles that men or women might take. And so within the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, it is a church that by policy does not ordain women as pastors. But within that... There is a great spectrum of how local congregations practice. And here at Fellowship of Faith, we are more towards the egalitarian side 
of that spectrum, which simply means that we don't ordain women as pastors here, but we have women that teach, women that preach, women that lead Bible studies or worship lead, women who are in staff, women who um, have authority in staff positions and in other ways over others underneath them. And the question you're asking is a good one, and here's how I encourage you to approach it. Don't approach it from what you want to be true. I have gone back and forth in this ping pong game between complementarian complementarianism and egalitarianism throughout my life, and I think that ping pong game is going to continue for me because there are very strong, valid arguments on both sides. Seek what the Word of God says and examine it fully and trust that God is good wherever that leads you and stay open to always being able to learn more and have your thinking adjusted if the Word of God starts to convince you and the church can bolster that behind you. Does that make sense? That's how I would encourage you to go about that. And how do you live it? Look, this is, this is how you live it all. Being a Christian, let me rephrase. Living for Christ, it will make you different. It will make you weird. It will set you apart from the culture in certain ways, and you will have to make decisions about whether you want to fit in and go with the flow or do something according to the word of God, Jesus' way. So wherever you fall in this spectrum is not my point now, nor is it restricted just to this gender question. But if you are convinced in your conscience and you can back it up with the word of God and the teaching and the, the encouragement of the church that this is the way of God, then you need to live that, even if it makes you weird. You've got to be true to it, even if it sets you at odds. And it doesn't mean that it's your, your job to convince everyone else in the world. It doesn't mean that it's your job to force culture to conform to you. But this is what Jesus means when he says, you will be salt, you will be light you will be set apart in a certain way and that will be marked not by the label you put on yourself but the way you choose to live. All right, let me take some fresh ones here today. Here's one, this is interesting. Come on, open up. Is praying for your future spouse heresy from the prosperity gospel? Get the idea? If you're unfamiliar with the, the, the prosperity gospel, probably the biggest um, advocate or proponent of it in Christianity today is Joel Osteen. Have you heard of Joel Osteen? It's a, it's a strain of theology that kind of goes like this. If you conform yourself to the teachings of God, do things his way, and seek and honor him, you will be blessed but you will be blessed materially with health, with wealth, with opportunity, and goodness in this world. And where it starts to go off the rails is when you start to ask the question, what if I'm not being blessed in this kind of way? Does that mean I am not doing things God's way? Here is the single only problem I really have with Joel Osteen and prosperity gospel teaching. It's not the substance of the teaching, 
It's the timing of the teaching. Because God does promise immense blessing. It just might, might not be experienced this side of eternity. The promise of Jesus and the prophets before him is that God is a God of abundant shalom who wants to pour out health and vitality and goodness and prosperity and the wonders of God's creation as he intended it to be. But the reality of living as a Christian now is that you might not face these things, might, might not see these things, and even worse, you might find horror and hardship, persecution and difficulty, poverty and brokenness as a direct result of following Jesus' way because the hope is yet to come in the new age. That's where the promise is sure. If you get it now, praise God for a sneak preview. So is it heresy to pray for your future spouse? I guess it depends. Do you think that God owes you a future spouse? Do you think that if you pray hard enough, it guarantees you that you'll get a future spouse? Do you think that if you do everything right, then it will happen because God's holding it back? Yes, that would be heresy. But are you someone who wants to get married? Maybe you don't even know the person yet, but you're like, Lord, I just want this. And I want, to, and I want this. And, and, and I'm going to pray for the person now, whoever it might be, that they be a person who honors you and seeks you, and that we find each other. Is that heresy? No, that's called talking to your dad about the good things that you want in this world. And he loves to hear that kind of thing. So if that's your posture, keep praying for that man or woman. I think that's kind of a beautiful thing. All right? Great question. Okay, here's one. If someone has Jesus in their heart but struggled with an addiction, does the devil play a role in that addiction? With temptation, aside from free will? You know, maybe. I, I think too often we are quick to bifurcate spiritual and mental health, spiritual and emotional health, spiritual and physical health. And I see the human being as a holistic being where there's an interplay of mind, soul, body, spirit. And I believe that there are spiritual forces at work in this world. And that isn't to say that if you struggle with addiction, you have some demon that's living inside of you, but I wouldn't underestimate the spiritual stronghold of sin and the forces of darkness in the world that play a part in these addictions. And I'm not just talking meth. I'm not just talking, you know, hardcore drug addictions, but things like gambling, shopping, eating, porn, cigarettes, TV, screen time. The devil wants strongholds in your life. And to what degree at any given point he's playing a role in that I can't measure for you. But as you seek help, help through that, seek it in all ways, not just slivers within the totality of the human being. Okay? Here's another. What is your belief on open communion? It's jargon that refers to how a church might practice this, this, this ceremony or meal, if I dare call it that, that we do, where we come up and share in Christ's body and blood together. So I'll tell you what I believe. And however that fits your definitions, I'll leave to you. 
I believe that this is something holy and sacred. I believe that it's something that God says can do as much harm as it does good. I believe that it's something that God says we need to examine ourselves in his presence and come with repentance and commitment. Otherwise, all we're doing is eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. It's not my words. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So what that means is I think that we need to be careful as we take this meal because those of us who call ourselves Christian, I think take it too routinely and flippantly. And I don't mean too often. I think God is a God of grace and that the way of Jesus is extending his grace to the most broken of the broken, the furthest from the fur, and the most disenfranchised from the disenfranchised, that he extends it to sinners and that that net needs to be kept open. But to people, not just because I'm following the crowd, not just because this is what I do because I'm a Christian, but people who are truly coming to seek the Lord in repentance and live their lives his way. If someone can do that, come commune. Come commune. Is that open? Is that closed? I don't know. You decide. Okay. This is one that I know has been in the past, but someone brought it in again. Our tattoos slash piercings, etc. I don't even know what etc. would be on that, but our tattoos slash piercings, a bad thing in terms of the Christian faith. I have to answer this question like you're going to see me answer a lot of these so-called ethical questions. It depends on your motivation. A lot of people mistakenly believe it is de facto wrong or bad. Because in the Old Testament law, you can read in Leviticus, it says, do not tattoo yourselves or cut yourselves for the dead. But we are no longer the Old Testament, no longer under the Old Testament Mosaic law. It also says, don't wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. I can tell you that there's polyester in this shirt. Strip it down, baby, right? I mean, like, like, what do we do? Banish our clothes here today? No, none of us want to see that, right? It says that you shouldn't trim the hair at the side of your beard, which is why Orthodox Jews have like those, you know, kind of cool, you know, dreadlocks kind of coming down or whatever you want to call it. So the question today is, what is motivating the tattoo? Does it bring glory to God? Are you beautifying the temple of the Lord that God has given you or defacing it? See what I mean? Because people get them for all kinds of reasons. And I think that's the question you need to be asking behind any kind of tattoo or piercing you might receive. Now, I'm going to get a couple of more here, and then we're going to move on and commune today. Every year, I get a number of questions on LGBT issues. And just like the gender ones, these came from three different sources. I packaged them together because it struck me as something wise to maybe just answer in one overarching shot than piecemeal. Let me read them. So, you think people who are transgender are deluded? Number two, wouldn't calling someone by their preferred pronoun be respectful and doesn't God want us to be respectful? And three, 
Would you officiate an LGBTQ plus wedding at FOF? Let me move to the first, and I'll share with you a story. It's a girl I had the opportunity of meeting when I did my undergrad work at Valparaiso. And I use the word girl because that's how she identified. The old school language for this girl would have been hermaphrodite. I'm told that's a trigger word now and it's more respectful to say transsexual. Whatever label you want to put on it, she was a girl who, at a chromosomal level, had multiple things going on that resulted in both physical and hormonal male and female traits. I know about this much about this stuff. So I'm not going to claim to be a biologist, but what I've read and studied that this actually affects about 0.07% of the population. In many cases, it's more clearly leaning one way or the other, male or female, but there are people in this world, and many of them, who've been born this way, just like there's people born with 12 fingers or 12 toes. And oftentimes doctors will take care of things at birth or shortly thereafter, but there are people in this world that are stuck truly having to figure out what gender am I? Whether it's biologically uh, visible or just at more of an internal level. And I think that some, and I think those of us who are too quick to condemn or judge need to remember that and walk in their own shoes before we so blanketly lay statements down upon them. But do I think that there are others who are confused in a deep struggle that they're having with their own identity and searching answers for that down the wrong path of thinking that maybe they're internally a woman even though chromosomally they're not or male? Yeah, I do. And if you want to use the term deluded, I think as long as we use it literally for what the word means without the harsh baggage that often comes with that, because a delusion is nothing more than this, fiercely holding to a belief against all common evidence to the contrary. You know, this is a common thing for bodybuilders. This body dysmorphia, where you will meet these men who can bench 350 pounds, who are absolutely ripped, and they look in the mirror and they think that they are weak and they see themselves as nothing, and i got to bulk up more. You see this among women who are anorexic. Beautiful girls who are convinced that they're fat, who starve themselves to the point of something that looks like it's out of a famine video because they are so convinced in their mind eye that they're overweight. I would say that those kinds of people need help and guidance. That to tell them, no, you, you, you really are secretly fat, even though you're not, would not do that person good. But they need someone to walk alongside them in love and compassion to help them in that. And I think there's many people who call themselves transgendered, not all, who find themselves in that same place. You know, this stat I do remember well. 
you realize that over 40% of everyone who calls themselves transgendered has attempted suicide? That's staggering. And these are people loved by God. People loved by God, human beings, precious and cherished by him. And sometimes someone who is tortured in a physical reality or sometimes who is struggling through a delusion. We as Christians are called love people in these places and walk alongside them with truth and love, honesty and compassion. And that's about the best I can do in the time I have for a question like that. By extension, would it be preferred? Uh, wouldn't calling someone by their preferred pronoun be respectful? And doesn't God want us to be respectful? God always wants you to be respectful, even to those who are not respectful. God always wants you to treat as valuable and important with compassion and love, even your enemies. So of course, God always wants you to be respectful. But how that plays out into how you interact and communicate to someone can't be answered in formulaic ways. It's dependent on so many other factors, the relationship you have with the person, the context that's taking place, whether it's better to meet someone where they're at in the moment or bring a compelling counter voice into their life. Check your heart before you answer that question because people will answer it both ways for the wrong reasons, right? It's like the tattoo thing. The motive behind it is what drives it. And would you officiate an LGBTQ plus wedding at Fellowship of Faith? Look, LGBTQ is a political lobby and a movement. And at some level, whatever political lobby or movement you belong to isn't what's the driving importance. I'll marry Republicans and Democrats. <laughs> Let's ask what I think you're asking instead. Would I marry a male and a male? No. I just don't believe it's God's will. And I'm open to being convinced otherwise through the scriptures, but the deeper I've dug into this, the more I'm convinced that what the word of God teaches is that it isn't God's plan for marriage. And would I marry a female and a female? No. On the exact same grounds. Would I marry a male and a female, but one happens to be bisexual, but they're choosing a monogamous relationship here? Well, sure. Sure, if we work through things and we talk through things, you see how it's a more confusing question than seems on the eye? And that the question that we ask and want to run to has far more delineation that needs to be done behind it. So hopefully that gives some context there. It's kind of a heavy one to end on, isn't it? So let's see what the next one, oh, geez. <laughs> and I'm not laughing about the question, so please forgive me. <laughs> it's one of the most important questions that people have asked. Many of you know this, many of you don't. My own father committed suicide. This is a personal question to me. And I'll tell you the answer I was convinced of before it ever became an issue for my dad. <laughs> no. No, suicide is not an unforgivable sin. No, no way. 
Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. And there's nothing, nothing, hear me, nothing you can do that puts you outside the purview of God's ability to forgive. There are those of you sitting here who have lost someone like me to suicide. Stop torturing your soul, thinking that it has excommunicated them from God's grace. Am I advocating suicide? You better believe I'm not. <laughs> Am I going to slap my dad around when I see him and go, what were you thinking? On the other side, you better believe I will. And then I'll give him a hug. <laughs> no. No, you're saved because Jesus died for you. Not because you've asked for forgiveness for the particular sin, because that's where this idea comes from. How can you ask for forgiveness after committing suicide? Well, you can't. Not in most cases. But it's not about that. You want to play by that set of rules? Imagine if you had to confess every single sin to be allowed into the gates of eternity. Do you know how many times a day we sin and we don't even realize it? Do you know how many unconfessed sins we have in our lives? Oh, praise be to God, he doesn't play by that set of rules where our forgiveness is dependent on our individual repentance. No, it's dependent upon God's grace. And that's what we have here today. And for those of you who have been in that place, it's what God offers to you. And if you want to talk about this, because I know how deep it strikes. Know that I'm here. Reach out to me individually, not through this kind of medium, and we'll sit down and we'll work through it. And for anyone here who's thinking about it, don't let that terrify you. But stand up against that temptation of the devil and choose God's way instead, because I'll tell you this, there is no such word as helpless or hopeless in God's vocabulary and whatever you're facing the light shines in the darkness, God promises, and the darkness cannot overcome it even if you feel like you're in a deep, dark valley of death. Reach out to me, would you? And I'm not even going to go to the next one because who knows where it's going to go next. <laughs> and the clock is beating me up. I know there's volumes left. We will continue this next week.